Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is our understanding of the paranormal based on unsupportable assumptions? What happens if we take those assumptions away? With this in mind, what is the future of research in any branch of the paranormal? Hey, and welcome to the 178th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and it's time for our weekly paranormal contest. Alright, so Nick White from New Orleans correctly answered last week's question. What is considered the most haunted place in Japan? I hope I can pronounce this correctly. Yokigahara, I believe, in Japanese. It's also known as the Sea of Trees, a beautiful 22-mile-wide forest at the base of Mount Fuji in Japan. And the problem with it is... It Everybody is, commits suicide. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the most popular place in the country to go and commit suicide. They have signs. Well, I guess it's a park of sorts, a national park, the whole Fuji mountain area. And it says in Japanese and English, you know, reconsider, you know, don't do it. And, all <laughs> and it's uh, people going to do it. And it's terrible. When you find bodies, it's horrifying. So anyway, you can uh, see why it's the most haunted place in Japan. Obviously, the government's trying to crack down on that sort of thing. And, yeah, because it's kind of yeah, Anyway, but well, that's what that is. So that was the answer to the question. And Nick, uh, congratulations. Uh, take it away, Ben. What's this right, week's question? So this week's question is, near what city in Poland was a flying humanoid reported in 2000? Well, that's kind of broad. So if you can deal with that, call us locally at 401-766-1240 or nationally at 800-449-1240 or email us at eno at onworldwide.com if nobody gets the answer before the end of the show and you still think you have a shot drop a line to me at bendbehindtheparanormal.com and the winner gets a copy of Faces at the Window my dad's 1998 book and it's about all his early cases alright yeah flying. we should have Faces of Flying Humanoids we've been talking about them so much uh-huh. Anyway, our call-in numbers today to remind you, uh, locally, 401-766-1240 and 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. Email is eno, E-N-O, one spelled backwards, at onworldwide.com. All right, Dad. So I sit here some weeks watching steam come out of your ears as you try to be polite to the ghost experts, quote-unquote, who don't know anything about what we do. So what do you see for the future of ghost research? Well, Ben, that's a long question. I do sit here. Remember, people sometimes write in uh, jocularly and commented about how difficult it must have been for us to be nice to be this I should for us to be nice to this psychic it's okay, it's or that ghost hunter or whatever, and it is it is difficult at times. One, one tries to respect other people's opinions, but my gosh. Anyway, uh, there are times when it looks pretty bleak for paranormal research. Right now, you have all sorts of what we refer to as feral ghost hunters roaming in packs, running around. You've got all sorts of um, people out there investigating things they have no business investigating, mainly because they're dealing with people in homes that are supposedly haunted, and and, and they mess people up. They don't know that, that the people need uh, really, at times, serious counseling. It's more about the people than the phenomenon. That's right. It is. That's true. But what I'm always harping on is that paranormal research should have the same motto as journalism. Assume nothing. Well, there's always a bunch of assumptions in the media now, so I guess this kind of reflects off the media. That's that's true, too. Yeah, journalism isn't the same as when I started in it 30 years ago. But uh, the word assume, of course, meaning that, that, that you take something as true, 
right off the bat without any proof. Yeah. So, all right. And you you can see how in journalism that messes things up. And certainly it does in paranormal research because there are lives, there's lives and property at stake. Now, without the assumptions people make about the paranormal and about everything else, maybe we can get somewhere. And we, we try to do that. And we don't take anything at face value. No. <laughs> maybe we can start to get past the fact that everything we know is wrong. Because that's how I came to that conclusion. I know I'm always saying that the unofficial motto of our show and our friend Lloyd Pye said, well, he didn't really coin it either. So, well, but it's, it's a cool tr- saying. So. It is. Everything we know is wrong. And uh, it took me 20 years to learn that. Uh, once you finally recognize these assumptions, they stand out like flies on the potato salad. All right, so when did all this start to dawn on you? Well, it took me, as I say, well, I'll say 10 years in this field to realize that I was assuming way too much. And here's what I mean. Uh, here's an example. In March of 2007, and I showed this to you when it came in, I got an email from a man in Wisconsin who had heard uh, heard me on the radio the night before. I think I was on Coast to Coast the night before that. And this email has haunted me ever since. No pun intended. Uh, here's Here's what it said. 28 years ago, my friend killed himself. On the, way of, on the day of his funeral, he came to me in a dream and told me that he was going to have to spend a long time in purgatory because God was mad at him. He and I were not Catholic. Right? This really shook me up. So I called the minister. Again, I'm quoting from this note, this guy in Wisconsin. So I called the minister that I knew and told him what happened. He said that strangely, a woman had just called him with the same story about the same person. I am now a Catholic. Remember that the only truth is Christ Jesus, unquote. Now, this note came to me like a, kind of like a hand out of the past, because a suicide, and this isn't easy for me to talk about, I've mentioned it before in the show, a suicide had been the defining event in my own childhood, maybe my life. I can see it just as clearly right now as if it was that cold January night in 1961. I was a little boy of seven. I came out of our house. I went to the driveway, I kind of looked back at the garage, the doors were open, and the car was full of smoke or steam. And I said, gee, what's going on? I hadn't seen my father in a little bit that day, but, you know, we... And, and I turned the other way, and I went over to a friend's house instead. And had I... And I've had to live with this all my life. Had I turned toward that car and gone over there, I might have saved his life. Uh, then again, in his tortured state of mind, he might have pulled me in with him. I mean, who, who knows? Now, from, from the day of my... And you can't divorce religion here from the paranormal in a case like this, I don't think. From the day of my father's death, my mind was filled with haunting suspicions and tortured questions about God and the dead. Uh, my father was uh, a non-practicing garden-variety Protestant with the biggest heart I ever knew. Uh, my mother, my brother, and I were strict Roman Catholics. Um, my mother had grown up under the hand, as a matter of fact, of a strict Methodist, no movies, no dancing grandmother. So Christianity meant business at our house. When my father passed, I was in second grade, local Catholic school. And in those days, before the Second Vatican Council began to lighten things up a little, the nuns were already programming us to feel lucky that we were Roman Catholics, because we could go to heaven. They also petrified us with thoughts of going to hell because of things like eating meat on Fridays, deliberately missing Mass on Sundays, or suicide. Had my father gone to hell? Had this kind, gentle man who had suffered so long with heart problems 
been cast into eternal fire. I had this good man who had never raised a hand or a voice against me in anger been damned forever because of a moment of mental torment? Now, fortunately, my teacher, Sister Mary Joel, was a saint. Now, some of the nuns, I don't know, I think they weren't nuns, they would have been axe murderers, but this particular uh, woman was, was just wonderful. And I got through that surreal time in my life largely because of her love and support and her assurances that God really does understand and forgive human failings. Sounds like it really is hard to separate the paranormal from religion. Well, when it comes to the nature of ghost phenomena, sure, uh, what's the biggest question for anybody? What happens to me when I die? I mean, your bank account, whether you have food at the table, no matter what happens in your life, whether you get that new job, whether you lose the job, it all pales in comparison with the question of ultimate destiny. What happens when I die? Uh, and really, you look at it, it's the whole point of religion to answer that question, and it's the reason a lot of people study the paranormal. They want to know. Yeah, so... After those terrible events with my grandfather, was there any paranormal echo? Not a whisper. I mean, contrary to the standard pop paranormal scenario for places where suicides take place, everything was peaceful at home. Uh, obviously, there was just we were struggling, you know. To, in I was in a one-parent family at a time when there really was very little of such a thing. Uh, but there weren't any strange footsteps. There weren't any feelings of being watched or threatened. No ghosts. Uh, my brother, your Uncle Bob, uh, more than 16 years older than me, went back to Washington, D.C. And the seminary where he was studying for the priesthood, uh, I was, as I say, seven years old. I kind of dusted myself off and took up life in this single-parent household. And uh, six years later, at the tender age of 14, I entered the seminary myself, back when you could do that kind of thing. And it was a question of purgatory, right? Now, at 17, I had a couple of experiences that might or might not have been paranormal, but uh, they were enough to get me interested in the subject. And I soon had the idea, or an idea, that was quite in line with that email I was to receive in 2007. It's another reason that email hit me so hard. Ghosts that weren't demons actually might be souls in purgatory. Now, this age-old worldwide belief in earthbound spirits was, was obvious. You know, every culture has it. You, you can't avoid it. And I thought, well, maybe uh, what the cultures all over the world think of earthbound spirits could be souls in purgatory, could fit the old Roman Catholic definition of purgatory. Uh, and I'm quoting from a modern catechetical source on this, quote, an intermediate state of purification between death and heaven that provides for the removal of personal obstacles to the full enjoyment of eternal union with God, unquote. So in other words, if you die but you aren't quite good enough to go to heaven, not quite bad enough to go to hell, you go to purgatory for as long as it takes to qualify for heaven. That's essentially what the doctrine said. It still does. Catholic belief seems to indicate that you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ in order to get this bonus chance at heaven, but... The universality of ghost stories made me wonder if God was maybe a little more inclusive than we are. Uh, maybe inclusive enough to include my father. But I couldn't find anything in church doctrine, let alone the Bible, that actually said <clears throat> what the nature of this purgative state might be. What actually happened to souls there? Now, in my entire 10-year seminary experience, I can't recall a single course that actually studied purgatory. In fact, by the early 1970s, Roman Catholic theology, especially in North America and Western Europe, where we tend not to understand anything, was liberalizing <clears throat> purgatory, 
along with a number of old other holdovers from the old catechism books, was something of an embarrassment. And um, Ben, you, you went through twelve years of Catholic school. Did anybody mention anything about purgatory? I remember a little bit about it. Like they sort of mentioned it, but they never really like went into detail about it. They were just like, "Oh, purgatory, it exists." And I was just, I was always confused about that because we're not of Catholic religion. So I was like, right. "Purgatory, what is that?" And everyone was all astonished that I didn't know what that was. Yeah, no, no other Christian denomination seems to really have that in that form. Uh, Episcopalians or Anglicans will. Sometimes uh, I it uh, warily, but I mean, you know. It's well, I didn't really get it because, I don't know, from what I got out of, like, Easter Vigil and stuff was that Jesus destroyed death. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, well, therefore, no one can go to hell. Well, that's the Orthodox perspective, uh, which is um, sometimes, I think, uh, compared with some of this other stuff, a little more healthy than some of the others. I, don't know, um, I, thought, I thought, like, the like what I was taught... I was like, I was kind of scared. Yeah. Like, it scared me, and I was just well, like... Well, the idea... Okay, let me give you an example. And, and, and I know that, that evangelical Protestants don't have any problem with this, generally. Um, in the story of the Witch of Endor, okay, you got uh, uh, Saul goes to see her, and, and, and they conjure up uh, the spirit of... I, I, I'm a little rusty here. I believe it's uh, Ezekiel. Or Isaiah, I, I can't remember which. I, I should have looked it up before we I talked about it. But anyway, um, he said, "Well, you know, why are you disturbing me?" You know, kind of the classic seance situation. But the, the, the theology of the Christian churches in general is when Jesus descended into hell. A lot of you know people hear. I heard that when I was a kid. As, you know, in this part of the creed, Jesus descended into hell. What the heck does that mean? Well, if it was translated properly, it would be descended into death. Yeah, uh, which took one who was. Life itself, by definition, and was destroyed by nature of that. It's like you trying to swallow a watermelon whole. You can't do it, right? Yeah. So, hell, in that sense, you're right. That death was destroyed. This is according to the theology, and um, but that doesn't mean nobody dies anymore. Although, in, in that, in the Orthodox service of uh, in the, the letter of Saint John Chrysostom, uh, it says, um, read on the night of Pascha or Easter, as it's called in the West. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the grave. They take that literally. And I do, too. And it's not because of my theological training, because this is what I see in paranormal research. Not one dead remains in the grave. There are no dead. You can't die. Yeah. So that, that here we go again that's into why, the multiverse. That's why, people, that's why people get confused when I say, I don't believe in death. And yeah. they're like, what? And I'm just like, I don't know, I just don't believe in death. You can justify that theologically. But again, uh, the West kind of fell behind and fell out of that and concentrates <laughs> more on the suffering rather than the resurrection. So in any case, uh, theologically, whether you're a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim, or whatever, uh, there are implications here in the paranormal for everything you the believe. Christians? Because you are talking about death and what happens. Anyway, uh, the late 60s and early 70s were a strange time in the church for people like me who were in the seminary. Uh, the Second Vatican Council had, as Pope John XXIII put it, opened the window to let in some fresh air. Uh, ecumenism and outreaches to other religions were born. Previously unaskable questions began to be asked. Uh, shouldn't God's love be emphasized rather than his punishment? Shouldn't the church work harder for your favorite term, social uh, justice? Uh. <laughs> Whatever that may mean, shouldn't priests be allowed to marry? These things are still questions. 
um, in the seminaries at the time, there was a certain amount of confusion uh, that previously there had been strict and almost military rules of discipline, and these were relaxed. Uh, those of us in the early years of priestly training no longer had to wear black suits or cassocks except, except on special occasions. Uh, amidst all this new, quote, dialogue, unquote, some would say chaos, came deeper questions that many of us uh, shook our spirituality to the core. Uh, why were so, priests, so few priests talking about Satan now? Uh, had the nature of our battle against evil changed? And what about dying? What was all this fresh air going to do to our understanding of death and its aftermath? Did we even believe in purgatory or hell anymore? Uh, my personal questions came out of all this confusion. What was the connection of all these traditional doctrines with the paranormal? Could ghosts be sold in purgatory? And deepest of all, where was my father? I found one lonely book on ghosts in the seminary library, uh, <coughs> Ghosts of Poltergeist, by Father Herbert Thurston, a British Jesuit priest, uh, and a rare treatment of the subject. He published it in 1953, and I don't think there's been a book since then that really was written by a priest on this subject. Um, mm, uh, maybe. Uh, there's there's, there's ex about books about exorcisms. exorcisms yeah, but I don't know if they're written by Well, no, you, no I, there I'm is wrong. One. There is, yeah, there is one. Actually, there are two. Okay. My, my girlfriend's mom owns it, I think. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's re well really? Because she hangs around with you? Well, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, so what happened when the priests at the seminary found out you were spending time on ghosts? Uh, well, I didn't spill the beans just yet, but I did ask a few questions. Uh, when I asked my priest professors about the nature of purgatory, I got some odd looks and answers that ranged from a temporary hell to we can't be sure, unquote. Now, by this time, your Uncle Bob was not only a priest himself, but also a doctor of theology, an author, and professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. And though we seldom saw each other and rarely talked about our dad, I suspect that similar questions are running through his mind, because oddly enough, he later took time off to actually study the doctrine of purgatory. Comments were made he was the first priest to do that since the Middle Ages. Mm. Uh, the doctrine of purgatory, such as it is, for a book he was writing about early Christian beliefs, something on which he was considered one of the world's leading experts. But even Bob couldn't help much. He could tell me the history of belief in purgatory, the history of the history, but that was about it. But what is it, I implored? Traditionally, it's considered a place of punishment, but temporary, he told me, and a consuming fire that cleanses unlike hell, which just punishes. But what does that mean? I, I pressed him. You know, you remember Uncle Bob. He had a unique, kind of a comical way of shrugging. Yeah. And when, when the argument was over, <laughs> he did that, and that was it. In any case, it started to hit me. All this punishment for finite beings committing finite sins. What a horrifying picture. I mean, who or what were we worshiping here? Another priest I cornered on the subject was a lifelong friend of Uncle Bob's and uh, second big brother to me, Father Richard P. McBrien. He was a brilliant scholar and author, and later author and editor of the Encyclopedia of Catholicism, from which I took the above quote about purgatory. Uh, you might have seen him interviewed from time to time on network TV, whenever something big is going on in the Catholic world. Why are you interested in that? Father Richard asked me, and he was an always uh, cheerful guy. He was. He, st he still is a very cheerful fellow. And he kind of implied that any seminary student in the early 70s ought to have better things to do. Well, I came clean about my interest in paranormal research because I knew him so well. He kind of looked at me with a twinkle in the eye. Better not tell. He gave me a long list of faculty from my seminary about that. As it turned out, truer words were never spoken. But it's an interesting idea, he admitted. 
Now, he later became head of the Department of Theology at Notre Dame University. So what does the church actually believe about ghosts? Well, actually, the Roman Catholic Church has less to say about ghosts than it does about purgatory. There is no specific teaching on the subject, but there is official mistrust when it comes to all paranormal phenomena. Uh, there's an especially deep suspicion of all things psychic and outright com- condemnation of any attempt to communicate with the dear departed. Now, you, you look at half these mediums. You, you and I can't help but run into psychics and mediums on the show and on our travels around, yeah. uh, even locally here. And, you know, around here, most of them are Roman Catholics. Mm. And they don't think anything of it. You know, and if, if, you, if you call them on it, they say, well, they don't really teach that it's, you know, that it's wrong. And I say, well, they certainly do. In any case, in other churches, take your pick. Evangelical Protestants believe that all paranormal phenomena are demonic, period. Liberal groups let you believe what you want. Jews and Muslims have specific beliefs about good and evil spirits, but they tend to kind of be refreshingly um, open about the ideas. Uh, but the point, the point I'm trying to make here is that many of these beliefs are assumptions, too. So did you find any support for your work at all? Yes, uh, some rare support came from a Jesuit priest in Washington, whom I met through your Uncle Bob, that's Father John J. Nicola, and he had the deliberately anonymous job of being assistant director of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. You remember that huge uh, church, a basilica across the street from Uncle Bob lived in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. yeah. Largest yeah. church in the country, I believe. Uh, big tourist attraction. Uh, contrary to popular belief, as I've often mentioned on this show, students for the priesthood are not trained in how to deal with the paranormal, or even the church's narrow definition of it. There are certain hand-picked priests of deep spirituality who receive training in what might be called demonology, quote-unquote, but it's all very hush-hush. Now, Father John was not only one of these, he was the most respected American authority on exorcism of his time. Now, he thought that the purgatory ghost theory made sense. Now, I visited my brother in Washington frequently during those years, and I always uh, met with... uh, Father um, John and got guidance from him and we exchanged letters constantly on the various cases I was working on he too was coming to the conclusion that there were a lot of assumptions that just didn't hold up Um, anyway he had been a technical advisor for the infamous film The Exorcist and told me that he deeply regretted it he wouldn't believe the stuff he described that would happen on the set poltergeist activity and this sort of stuff and he'd seen it himself now that movie released in December of 1973 solidified already growing public interest in the paranormal with the one result being that the, the Roman Catholic Church was besieged not only with requests for information about exorcism but with calls for help from people who were convinced they or their children needed exorcism so the church did what it usually does in a crisis instead of undertaking to educate people about the subject you know here's what it's about here's what we believe about it you know in a balanced and sensible manner the Vatican and the bishops just clammed up Now, what all this does, and they haven't learned their lesson to this day, all this does is to create still more interest and even wilder speculation. So um, this would not, of course, stand me in good stead as the church authorities became more and more paranoid about the paranormal paranormal subject and my involvement in it. I also corresponded with uh, the great pioneer of parapsychology, Dr. Louisa Ryan, wife of Dr. Joseph Ryan. The Rhines, uh, based at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, had been working in the paranormal field since the 1970s. They are legendary. Uh, they began the study of precognition, uh, that, which means knowing about something before it happens, and extrasensory perception, or ESP, a term that they coined. Not surprisingly, uh, Louisa did not think much of my purgatory theory and uh, was very scientific in her view and did not think that it was right to question the assumptions of science. 
you know, maybe today she'd find our experience educational, but I don't know. She's a, I loved her a lot, and uh, she's since passed away, of course. Anyway, uh, she, she did suggest that I study abnormal psychology, which I did on both the graduate and undergraduate levels. Uh, and Lorraine Warren, on the other hand, thought the purgatory thing was right on the money. Now, always controversial, even today, Ed and Lorraine were two 1940s and 1950s artists who became the grandfather and grandmother of modern ghost hunting. Now, Ed passed away in 2006, and throughout their long career, they developed a huge popular following, uh, were highlighted in at least ten books, featured in several movies and television documentaries. Uh, They also drew heaps of criticism from many parapsychologists who questioned their theories, methods, and at times even their honesty. Uh, The fact that Warren was a sort of a numb de plume adopted during their days as artists didn't necessarily help their credibility, although I don't think that was justified. In 1972, Lorraine read something. I wrote about this purgatory idea uh, and contacted me to arrange a meeting. Arriving at their Monroe, Connecticut home one summer that, one evening that summer, I found two really, really gracious people who were to become dear friends and wonderful supporters of my work. Uh, In many ways, Ed was to become the father I didn't have. Uh, and we talk about this purgatory theory a lot, and he was he was a good, great guy, really, really reassuring on the question of my own father. Um, now, he told me that he had taken a vow to the Blessed Virgin Mary that he would devote his life to, quote, fighting the devil on his own terms, unquote. Never quite figured out what he meant by that. But a lot of people that, uh, but a lot of what the Warrens did did make you nervous, right? Well, yeah. Uh, we didn't always see eye to eye. Uh, while the Warrens considered themselves ultra-conservative Roman Catholics and thought the purgatory thing was brilliant, uh, theology was not their forte. Uh, many of their practices were questionable. For example, Lorraine was a psychic medium who routinely led seances, and Ed cultivated friendships and connections among many renegade clergy who had rebelled against the liberalism following the Second Vatican Council and were no longer recognized as legit by the Roman Catholic Church. But still, the Warrens had many friends among rank-and-file clergy of several faiths, and they were warm welcomed at my seminary, Wadhams Hall Seminary in upstate New York, when they came to speak there as a favor to me. Um, okay, uh, let, let's stop here for a little brief break. Uh, again, a lot of people keep asking where to get my books. Listen to the show, because I'll tell you. Locally here in, in uh, northern Rhode Island, you can go to the Museum of Work and Culture bookstore, uh, right on Market Square, the, the remarkable Museum of Work and Culture is a great place. It has uh, Disney-quality exhibits, uh, learn all about the uh, working history of the Blackstone Valley, uh, the various immigrant groups that came in, particularly the French Canadians, uh, to work in the mills and what they put up with and, and the various... Um, Ways they live their lives is very interesting, and you don't want to miss it. But in the gift shop, they pretty much stock all my books, including Rhode Island, A Genial History, which under my other hat as a historian was um, written with Glenn Laxton of Channel 12 um, several years ago and uh, is used in several school districts in Rhode Island, I'm happy to say. I don't think it's all that politically correct, so I <laughs> it's a, I'm happy to hear that students are, are at least using it as, as a resource. Uh, also, uh, I would just uh, people have been asking uh, in droves about my next book, which is Dancing Past the Graveyard, What Ghosts Have to Say About God. And actually, much, much that I'm saying tonight is part of the introduction of that book. And I have switched publishers. So that, that is what is causing one of the delays, not to mention the fact that I haven't entirely finished the book. So in any case, there we are, and uh, we'll continue with the show. Anybody has any questions uh, tonight or wants to join our discussion, 766-1240 is the local number in the 401 area code or nationally, 800-449-1240. We have Kyle, one of our 
supporters. We have Kyle Dayton. Uh, we're going to ch- I guess we'll switch gears here from purgatory to hell. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> UFO I- land. Uh, Kyle, you're with us. I am. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. How are you today? Uh, very fine, thank you. Uh, okay. uh, maybe you're, anybody who's not interested in theology will consider it a relief that you've called in about UFOs. Kyle Dayton is our southwestern reporter for the show, uh, based in Arizona. And uh, what do you got for us tonight, Kyle? Well, I don't mean to change gears on you. You know, I'm away from the internet today, but I'm speaking on. You know, I've got my report here, but I hope I'm not changing the subject on probably no, what is a very interesting all. topic. That's, that's okay. I'm just sort of rambling on about uh, assumptions and my own history and paranormal research. So please go ahead. All right. Well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm calling to give you a report on a sighting that happened in the Tucson area on Thursday evening, September 23rd. And the sightings or sighting of the object or objects came in between the 7 o'clock hour, 10 o'clock hour, and the 11 o'clock hour. The blogs that I'm speaking from were posted on TucsonCitizen.com, and they were gathered and reported by a woman named Sherilyn Gardner-Strong. And uh, let me see, the the sightings ranged from a row of lights ranging from three to eight lights in a a row or a horizontal line. The lights were, depending on the the, uh, person sighting it, the lights were either yellowish-white or orange or red. They seemed to blink out one at a time. One of the lights, or uh, the string of seven yellowish white lights, were seen. Were they said they were they were flying very, like barely flying in the sky, and they were in a perfect arc. One person said they saw a triangular shape as it flew in front of them, in front of the moon. They could see a perfect tri- silent triangular shape that flew in about seven thirty, and it was lit on each point. Uh, there were reports as this object flew from, it was first reported in the, in the Green Valley area and then also in the southeast of Tucson and then southwest, and then it was spotted flying in a northwesterly direction to the town of Marana. Um, and people said that as it flew over them, especially in the southwest area and over Star Pass Boulevard, the intersection there in Tucson, traffic lights seemed to flicker uh, or dim and then come back right on again as this object flew well, over. That's interesting. Yes, and there were also reports of people's televisions freezing, going black, uh, television transmission, satellite transmission interrupted, and there was also a report of an elevator malfunction, but, you know, that could be just a coincidence. Yeah. And uh, Also, at the time, there was a young lady who we know her very well in Tucson here. She goes by the name of Sheila Aliens on YouTube. That is one word, Sheila Aliens. She watches the skies constantly here in Tucson. She is Sheila Martin, and she came up with some video footage of that evening of, some, well, a lot of the witnesses say that's not what they saw, but some say it was. It looks like it could be possibly a plane or a high-tech plane with unusual lights on it. Uh, it she's posted that on YouTube. You might want to take a look at that. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we get traffic over here in the Tucson area all the time, all kinds of air traffic, you know, where there's helicopters, there's planes, there's Davis Monthan Air Force Base here, and you know, people get used to seeing regular planes, you know, commercial planes and private planes, and you get to know the light pattern and the blinking and this and that. Well, the, the object that she, the flying object that she captured was, the, the lights are kind of unusual, but some people say, no, it's just landing lights, but these, the lights were, were flickering in, a, in an unusual way, and there were two lights on it that were, were still they were kind of like what we've been seeing around here in the Arizona City Casa Grande area, and they yeah. weren't blinking. 
But in her video, it's about two minutes and 40 seconds long. May I, may I ask but, um, yes. uh, one thing? You mentioned at one point that this was seen to pass in front of the moon. Was it like a, a full moon so that one could see oh, the outline oh, yes. of the craft? Yes, I'm sorry I didn't mention that. On the night of the 23rd, it was a full moon. And uh, the reason I ask is because there's been some some speculation about this triangular craft. And interestingly enough, we had on our CBS uh, show last night, we had a, a policeman from Vermont was talking about something entirely different, which was a, a parasite case he'd had in his house that Ben and I worked on over the past few years. And uh, just at the end of the show, we asked him if he'd had any other paranormal experiences in the area since these things do tend to go together in our in our experience and he mentioned a triangular craft uh, over the mountains of vermont it came very close to them treetop level uh he was out with with a friend and uh it was really quite all i could think of was hey kyle's got to hear this and th- this was some years ago before the triangle thing became popular but the moon question has to do with this the there's often speculation that these are independent craft, you know, the three lights people see, and other people think they are uh, the, the points of light on one craft, which is triangular shaped. When it went in front of the moon, what, what did people see? People saw a, a, a single craft? Uh, yes, well, the, the one report that came in, they saw a solid triangle, a dark triangle with okay. one light at each, each of its points as it flew in front of the moon, and they could see its outline. There you go. Yes, okay. and that's what they saw. And also, I should mention, you know, with Sheila's, Sheila's video, there is some interesting orange lights in the background. Some people saw one, some people saw two. Huh. There's one that was moving erratically for a moment, so possibly she caught something else. It may be, you know, what she caught was a high-tech plane, and some people said, well, it's a C-17, and this and that. But, you know, I'd like to see the footage of the C-17 or, car, you know, a cargo plane, military cargo plane, that to compare to see how they look. And, you know, and there were, there were a lot of opinions, opinions on that, but... But there seemed to be, you know, the, um, it's the consensus is there was anywhere from three to eight lights on this thing. And there, was, yeah. yeah. There, there is some footage that we saw, every, we uh, mentioned, I think, on our Talking Points page some months ago, that the Phoenix lights, which often feature triangular craft as, as a side show, so to speak, yeah. um, have been seen and, and well documented. But there, there is some video I've seen where it's, it's clearly an airplane. Mm-hmm. with yes. uh, lights at two ends of the wings and one on the tail, and it's uh, propeller-driven, which seems to me rather noisy. So I, I don't really know what, what that was about, but uh, some, some of the uh, Dr. Kitai's uh, footage that, that we have uh, uh, pointed out on the show had that. So, again, we, we, never really, we never really know. Yes, that's true. Yeah. You know, yes, and also, too, it could be high-tech planes because down here they not too far from us uh, toward tucson they have a cia uh, air park used to have a sign cia air park outside but the sign's been taken down and you know davis monthan is here and and to the southeast of us is uh fort huachuca which is you know the the home of u.s army intelligence and also too there's there's uh the phoenix uh, i'm sorry the arizona republic did a story not too long ago on drones being tested in this area so who knows what it is well, that's I, true. Sh- I should yes and i should mention too that koLD tv 13 was the was who broke the story and by around 10 o'clock their their uh, weatherman had said that this is not a weather phenomenon they had gotten reports in there reports to davis monthan and uh there and they said by the time that this craft had reached marana there were what could have been military planes or jets or whatever helicopters around it, but Davis Monthan would not confirm that. But they denied that they did have air traffic or in that area at the time. Yeah. So you okay. know, I got you. Think of what you will. Okay. Very good. So that, well, 
Well, I, I, thank you very much, Kyle, for calling in. We'll be in touch. Thank you, Paul. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Kyle Dayton, everyone, from Arizona, our uh, southwestern reporter for our show, and uh, very glad to have her at, uh, at all times. Okay, um, Ben is, well, anyway, I was, I was going to start, we were talking about assumptions that are being made in the paranormal, all areas of the paranormal, in my experience, particularly with the ghost phenomena. Uh, so I guess by the late 1970s, uh, when it became clear that the ghosts I and my fellow seminarians were unofficially investigating were not in any state that I could recognize as uh, as purgatory. All right, so when did the assumptions start bothering you? Well, it was about this time. Uh, other than the fact that we usually couldn't see them, uh, they didn't seem to be dead at all. I mean, our assumption is that ghosts are dead people, right? Uh, most seem to be going about their daily lives somewhere or somewhere else and were largely oblivious to us. Now, once I started to question the classic spiritualist interpretation, I'm always bad-mouthing that spiritualist here, nothing personal, uh, interpretation of what I was investigating. And when I looked beyond even what my distinguished mentors were telling me, the whole picture began to broaden, and astounding possibilities started, started to open up. What did the paranormal really mean? Uh, what does it do to our understanding of death, of ghosts, of God, of history, of science, of everything. It would take many more years, but eventually I came to this simple but sobering conclusion that we said at the beginning of the show, everything we know is wrong and has to be rethought. This is because of how we think we know it. Everything we know, including the classic interpretation of the paranormal, is based on assumptions, again, that few of us realize actually are assumptions. We don't question them. One of the biggest is that our five physical senses, you know, sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell, give us an accurate view of the, quote, real world, unquote. We don't know anything of the kind. Uh, What that means is that we see everything from our own physical point of view, with ourselves as sort of the center of the universe. But when you actually consider it, you realize how arrogant this is. You also realize that our physical senses cannot be relied upon when you look back on it. They give us and even groups of us conflicting or apparently inaccurate information all the time. Your eyes, for example. You're driving down the road, see a heap of stuff on the side of the road. Oh, well, that's a bunch of rags somebody threw. Oh, no, and and somebody else in the car says, well, no, that's a dead animal. And you get there and it's neither or it's both or, or one or the other. And, you know, again, you cannot rely entirely on your senses. Uh, I'm often talking about dear old Rene Descartes, French scientist and philosopher, uh, lived from 1596 to 1650. And he realized this when he tried to build a whole system of thought that he felt would actually get us somewhere. And he said, well, okay, well, where can I um, get an idea? What idea can I use that everybody can accept and that nobody can question? And he came up with the idea you know, to, to start learning. And he came up with the idea that uh, I think, therefore I am. Right? If I think, I must exist and therefore, I can I can start building knowledge from there. Well, uh, people often somebody on our, we were dealing with a scientist on our on our CBS version of the show a week or two ago, and she's and he was saying that well, you know, you can't question everything because even you know Descartes said I think therefore I am. So yeah, well, I'm sorry, my friend, but Descartes, when he came to the end of his life, disbelieved in all he he rejected that. He said even that is not good enough. We 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 cannot say that we really know anything 
And some of the greatest minds have gotten to the end of our lives, including St. Thomas Aquinas, upon whom all of Western Christian theology has been influenced. Uh, even he said his works were straw at the end of his life and burn them all. Yeah, but then like they were just like, oh, he's old and crazy. Yeah, well, that's the problem. They think, well, maybe he knows more than you do. Maybe he's had a, a spiritual experience. Maybe God he, has somehow he touched did. him. He did, because he went into a coma for like, like a couple of days or so or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the... Somehow we, the only time we see it clearly is when we're dying. Because you know, I say there isn't any such thing as death, but the body sure goes through that experience and it wises yeah. us up, I think. So even if the world's greatest thinkers admit that they have reached the end of their lives and without really knowing anything for sure, except for a simple faith in God maybe, where does that leave the rest of us? And uh, what, would, what would some of your professors say? Uh, about what? Uh, how we can know some mathematics, right? I guess. All right. Well, math can't lie, huh? All right. It, its functions can be repeated. Uh, they never vary. Uh, two plus two always equals four, right? Well, not necessarily. As with any other form of knowledge, the ultimate meaning of mathematical functions depends on your point of view. For one thing, two plus two does not always equal four. There, there's a system of mathematics, uh, the, the base two system, and there are a number of base systems. Uh, originally, they were developed to start developing computers, uh, but in the base two system, two plus two always equals two. So again, the conclusion depends on how you look at it, not only the result of the mathematical function, but the elements that lead to its result. Okay, then what about the scientific method? It's the basis of all practical, generally accepted knowledge in the modern world. And pose a question, build a hypothesis, test the hypothesis, hypothesis through physical experiments that can be repeated by anybody, come up with a theory. If enough people become convinced of it, your theory becomes a scientific law. All right? Once again, not good enough. There are too many assumptions. One is that the world is made up of matter and material interactions that comply with our logic. Well, another is that linear time as we experience it is objectively real. And once again, we assume that our five physical senses can be the standards of all knowledge. We don't know for certain if any of these is true. And without these ducks in a solid and consistent line, the scientific method falls apart. So as a matter of fact, quantum physics, not to mention paranormal research, has pretty much eliminated all three of these contentions, materialism, time, and the reliability of our senses over the last century. So in the subatomic quantum world, matter dissolves into energy, time is meaningless to the point that effects can take place before the causes that cause them. Particles can move enormous distances without traversing the space in between. Fantasy land is here. You're through the looking glass with this stuff. And this is what I started to realize early in my paranormal research. And I decided the best way to learn is to shut up, which I'm not doing right now, I guess. But this is a, is a talk show. People ask me, young ghost hunters and stuff, they say, well, you know, uh, when we go in, we have all our devices and all this stuff on our EMF meters, and it says this and that. How do you really learn from this? I said, you learn by shutting up. You sit, you quietly let the sight teach you. Let the paranormal teach you. So It little, will show you what it is. Go ahead, Ben. So shout out to Paul Deverer there. That's right. That's right. Paul Deverer, our good friend from England, who was the uh, founder of the Dragon Project and expert on Earth Mysteries, who gets into all areas of the paranormal. He went through this. I'm not the only one and Ben who go through these, these questions about you know, assumptions and things. Uh, people who, I think, really 
learn to quiet down, try to think a little more deeply, meditate, whatever, you know, we'll realize that we don't really know anything, and you have to have a whole new definition of what knowledge is. All right? So, um, anyway, uh, it's I tried to do that, and as the cases developed, certainly in the late 1970s into the early 80s and, and beyond, and it seemed to teach me that we live in not the universe, but, as I'm always saying, a multiverse where infinite numbers of universes contain all possibilities as concrete realities. Laws of physics can vary from one to the other. That's how these things seem to manipulate space and time. And the ashtray goes floating across your living room. Um, and in which there can be infinite numbers of you's and me's, sometimes with identities reversed. So for anything more exotic than building a house or plotting a flight plan, the scientific method is next to useless. That's why, because it cannot define reality. That's why, quote, modern science, which I deeply respect, nevertheless, it's powerless to define reality. Never mind meet our basic human need for love, meaning, and truth. The scientific method is not designed to penetrate the, the multiverse, and it cannot touch God. So what about God? All right, well, we're coming down to the end of the wire here, but... So just go quick! Okay, well, if we can't be sure about something as universal and concrete as the scientific method, how can we begin to be sure that God exists? Well, here's where we reach the moment of truth in Western thought, where we have no more reasonable arguments, no more word games, no more mind tricks. We cannot prove that God exists. We're out of options. Or are we? Don't forget the greatest assumption of all, the one that we have had to deal with uh, once we reach the end of the intellectual road, it's the contention that we can fully understand reality through reason. Our brains can be the ultimate arbiters of truth when they cannot. Who says they can? We can kiss that king of assumptions goodbye pretty much along with the rest of them. The fact is that our precious collection of assumptions has done five things to our species and to our society, as well as to conventional science and paranormal studies. First, it has limited our thinking and vision, therefore narrowed our worldview to an almost laughable degree. Second, it prompts us to ask the wrong questions, a practice that can never yield the right answers. Third, it encourages us to think of our ancestors, especially our remote ancestors, as uneducated nitwits because they thought beyond the world of matter. Fourth, it can encourage a sort of super-skepticism as a psychological defense against the fact that we are not in control of our world. Five, entwined with all this, it has established a dangerous intellectual and social comfort level that makes us satisfied with lives that are not satisfactory at all. So all we have left is the F-bomb. Faith. It's a stronger, surer concept than most moderns might think it is. In Latin, faith, or the word fidem, means trust. To me, that means trusting our ancestors a little. After all, we're the only civilization in history to live in artificial environments, completely separated from the earth, and as a result, we're the only one that en masse questions the existence of things our ancestors knew to be true, like God and the paranormal. Among Christians, the official thing is faith itself is evidence that something is real. And, and that, quote, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, unquote, from Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Buddhists, who don't even believe in a personal God, consider faith as an essential sense of conviction. To Muslims, faith is complete submission to what they know is the truth. There are arguments about the jarring reality of faith that can be made from some of the apparent findings of quantum physics, even. 
Uh, the uncertainty principle Heisenberg came up with indicates the reality of something is literally determined by the conscious, obser- conscious observer. They can make an argument for that that we literally create reality. Right. And I don't have time for anything else, but that's the idea. Forget the assumptions and the world opens up. As a matter of fact, it opens up so much that it becomes the multiverse, where anything and everything is possible, and it's all up to, not you, but us, together. That's the secret of the paranormal. And uh, you're going to have to read the book if you want the rest of this. Okay, anyway, we're coming down kind of the wire here. And I did want to read uh, one uh, email here from from someone uh, who kind of touches on a little bit of this. And this is from Mike in Baltimore. And Mike writes... Uh, in this theory, uh, I should say, uh, you have already, may have already seen this article in the New Scientist magazine. Uh, here's a link just in case, and I'll give you the link in a minute. Uh, called Countdown to Oblivion, Why Time Itself Could End. And this article is kind of a logical conclusion to everything we've said today. What does it all mean and where is it all going when it comes to forgetting the assumptions and seeing the bigger picture? Quote, in this theory, different parts of space can undergo dramatic growth spurts, essentially ballooning into separate universes with their own physical properties. This process happens an infinite number of times, creating an infinite number of universes called the multiverse. And this article is, again, another conference with papers presented that reinforced belief among scientists, or around physicists particularly, in the multiverse. And it's uh, HTTP, of course, uh, www.newscientist.com slash article, and I'm not even going to be, uh, and, and slash DN19513, Countdown to Oblivion, Why Time Itself Could End, dot html we'll put that on our behind the paranormal website it's kind of a mouthful know. there yeah yeah it's true you're never gonna you're never gonna remember it anyway uh and then uh mike has uh, some more comments kind of political comments too and uh we wanted to uh thank certainly kyle dayton for calling in tonight and ben in in the course of your education uh, Am I all wait here? Are you seeing assumptions? Because you're in college now, and, and are you seeing assumptions coming forth in science or history or things that where, where you say, "Hey, gee, my dad said that," or, or "I thought that," or, or what? Well, um, let's see. Wait, didn't we talk about this earlier? Well, that way. Well, no, no, we didn't. I'm thinking of something else. Well, well, I well, assume... You mentioned that in, in the, your, your Catholic 12 years of Catholic school about the purgatory thing. Well, I know, but I mean yeah. something something else. I mean earlier today, not like oh, in the last hour. Okay, yeah, maybe. Maybe I, don't remember. I was talking about something interesting. Well, I don't remember. But, um... Crap, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah. Well, don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll think about it. We'll, we'll talk about it. Not like we're not going to talk about this again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we do point you toward our uh, website, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, because you can get our uh, my books there as well. And uh, we were rather touched uh, by a uh, an email received from Boise, Idaho, the other day. And I, I know that they'll probably be listening to this. And I'm going to answer your email shortly. Uh, they are a young couple is getting married in Idaho and is taking their uh, honeymoon in New England and would like to make part of that honeymoon meeting Ben and me. And I thought that was really, uh, uh, we felt very warm and touched by that. I think that's a lovely thing. And we are going to arrange some way to uh, get together with you. I just hope it doesn't happen more often. Like, hey, we're coming out here for a family vacation. Can we hang out with you guys? Well, I don't think that's such an awful thing. Well, I don't know Well, you're a hermit. 
Yeah? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing. Anyway, um, so anyway, you can also on, on the Behind the Paranormal website subscribe to our we- little weekly newsletter. It comes out most weeks anyway. A little email newsletter tells you what's going, going on on the show and what, what we're up to. All right, so uh, next week, turn in, tune in to our regular Sunday show, October 3rd. At 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on CBS NewSky Radio and www.newskyradio.com. And we'll talk about the nature of paranormal parasites and what most people call demons. Yeah, we got into that kind of last night, too, when that uh, the haunted policeman case. Very interesting. A wee bit. Yeah. Uh, also, again, check our web, uh, website, BehindTheParanormal.com, again. A local radio schedule for cities where CBS carries our show and the websites where you can hear us from anywhere. I also wanted to mention, too, our friend Philip Imbrogno. I've been saying this the past several weeks, but we want to give him a good push because it's uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, UFOs, a history of sightings in Connecticut and New York. That's Saturday, October 23rd at 11 a.m. at the Silas Bronson Library if you happen to be in the vicinity of Waterbury, Connecticut. And uh, Phil is a writer, science educator, good friend of ours, guest on the show many times, and a uh, great proponent of the multiverse theory, and is actually building a device to open portals between worlds, which he says he is not going to sell to ghost hunters. Okay. And uh, personally, we don't think you need machines, and we're going to be trying well, to prove that. Well, I'm pretty sure we shouldn't talk about that on the air, but whatever floats your boat... Okay, all right, well, whatever. Because it's like saying, hey... I just found this archaeological dig in my backyard, and it has things that everybody should come and look at. And then it's actually well, I didn't give the so guys a dress for Pete's sake. Well, I know. All right. Anyway, so go ahead. All right, so many thanks to our saintly producer, Craig Pelletier. Next Monday, October 11th, Columbus Day, we'll be helping out at the WOON booth at the annual Autumn Fest here in Woonsocket. A big annual event here because there's really nothing else to do <laughs> in the Blackstone Valley. Bam. So, well, I'm on the board of the Tourism Council, for Pete's sake. Give me a break. Well, anyway. Go ahead. Good. So the station will air a rebroadcast, but we'll be... Well, back here live the week after that, so it's not next week. Yeah, no. All right. We end with a quote from American author Peter DeVries. The universe is like a safe to which there is a combination, but the combination is locked up in the safe. See you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of... Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.